Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We're just a few weeks out from the 2020 election, and we want to make sure every eligible voter has the information they need to register to vote and cast a ballot. We're teaming up with Rock the Vote to help you register and make sure you have all the resources you need. Don't wait until the last minute. Check out Rock the Vote's resources now to make sure you're ready and signed up to get any election-related updates at rockthevote.org. Not sure if you're registered to vote? Find out at rockthevote.org. Not registered? Register to vote at rockthevote.org. Sign up to get election-related notifications that affect you at rockthevote.org. Your voice is powerful, and you're in the best position to influence your friends and family. So take the time to talk with them about the importance of making sure their voter registration is up to date and share these resources with them at rockthevote.org. Now on to the show. Wisconsin is often referred to by its nickname, America's Dairyland. It's home to other marquee American businesses, like Harley-Davidson and Miller Brewing Company. But it's the dairy industry that is synonymous with the state. Now, technically, Wisconsin is second to California in milk production, but leads the nation in cheese production. Those cheese head hats commonly worn by Green Bay Packers fans, they might seem over the top, but being a cheese head is a source of pride for many in the state. This industry isn't merely the cornerstone of the state's economy, it's an identity. And much like the rest of the state, the dairy industry has not been immune to the changing political landscape. In fact, politics in Wisconsin's Dairyland is changing quickly. Dairy country is home to many of the state's counties that voted twice for Obama before flipping for Trump in 2016. Rural Wisconsin is where Donald Trump racked up his most substantial margins in the state. These are the swing voters that propelled him to the White House. And four years later, we find these same dairy farmers struggling to stay afloat in the wake of trade wars, COVID-19, and the rapid decline of family farms. And yet the question remains, which way will they swing this time? From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is Winning Wisconsin, the story of one state fighting for its own political identity with national implications. So that's one of our roosters. We have two pretty nice roosters here on the farm along with about 12 hens. And those are eggs just for our family here. 
And now I'm coming down to see some of our cows here. Um, my husband and I live on the old farm where his dad was born. And we have the, the mom cows that are in between milkings because they're waiting to have their next calves. And I was hoping that they might moo for you, but they actually just got fresh feed. So they're all very content and have no reason to moo. That's Sarah Lloyd. Sarah helps operate a 400-cow dairy farm with her husband, Nels Nelson. Yes, you heard that correctly. The farm has been in her husband's family for over 100 years. And as is the case with many farm families, Sarah is the spouse that works what's called an off-farm job to provide health care for the family. She's a food systems scientist, which means she researches supply chains for farm communities with the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for Integrated Agricultural Systems. In COVID, I'm here in our farmhouse on Zoom meetings. While people are out feeding cows, I can hear the tractors right outside the door. That's our life. You know, we have eight employees. It's my husband, his brother, and my in-laws. Uh, and our milk gets picked up every day by the milk truck and goes down the road actually about an hour and a half now, to a cheese plant north of here. Uh, we milk 400 cows, which is about medium size for Wisconsin, but we're a pretty typical Wisconsin dairy farm. Sarah's typical Wisconsin dairy farm plays a substantial role in the state's economy. Well, the dairy industry is estimated to be providing about $45 billion in terms of the state's economy. Mark Stevenson is the director of the Center for Dairy Profitability at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's got a white handlebar mustache that feels like an unintentional nod to the famous Got Milk ads of the 90s and early 2000s. We spoke about the state of the dairy industry, which is rapidly consolidating. In the 1930s, the U.S. had 3.5 million dairy farms. Now we're down to 30,000. Wisconsin has seen an especially sharp decline. In a recent year-long investigation called Dairyland in Distress, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel found that in 2014, Wisconsin had over 10,000 dairy farms. By 2019, it lost over a quarter of them. And the rate of farm closures and consolidation is speeding up due to plummeting milk prices. Here's Mark. Now going into our sixth year of relatively low milk prices, and this has taken its toll on dairy farms. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a much more rapid consolidation of these dairy farms. There's, there's just no room for mistakes and errors, and, that, and that's one of the issues that I think we've had. Now, we do have people with successful farm businesses at all business sizes. So it's not just a big farm, small farm thing. In fact, some of our farms that are... Um, having some real problems today are unusual because there may be what we would call medium-sized farms, maybe four or 500 cows, 600 cows, something like that. That's unusual. Usually those farms would have worked hard, would have had a few rough years, um, but they would get through that. And now some of those are having a very difficult time. Dairy farms are used to market fluctuations. They can usually withstand a three-year dip in milk prices, but five? Coming up on six, that's intolerable to most farms. Many now have to choose between selling off their farms or increasing production. Increasing production by bringing on more cows and generating more milk is one of the few ways to increase revenue. But it's a slippery treadmill, and as Mark said, there's no room for error. Here's Sarah on how the last few years have affected her family's farm. 
Yeah, it has been very difficult to be a dairy farmer, especially these last years. So back in 2015, prices started falling. We'd had a couple pretty decent years where you could actually cover your costs and maybe even, you know, replace that 20-year-old car that you were driving around. <laughs> and then in 2015, the prices dropped. There were some disruptions in the export markets even then, even before Trump started tweeting trade wars. The prices are so low that you don't know how you're going to pay your bills month to month. You're going back to your banker and asking to refinance your loans. Um, and part of the reason the prices have been so low since 2015 is that we are too good at what we do here as farmers. We are producing too much milk and we don't have a federal system because the federal government really does impact the way that milk is priced and the way it's handled. And so we don't have a system that is giving us signals to shut off or, or take our foot off the gas. You know, we are just chasing production because all of the prices are too low for people to survive. And so the, the tendency is to just like try to run faster. And the current chase to produce more and more while making less and less has extreme consequences. Wisconsin has led the nation for the last three years in family farm bankruptcies. You know, we lost 900 dairy farms in Wisconsin last year. That's devastating. That's 900 individual businesses in rural areas that support all the other businesses around them. And that's really what's, you know, we're hollowing out the dairy farm families and the, the structure of the industry in, in Wisconsin. And that's really having an impact. A quick note. Most reports from the Milwaukee Sentinel Journal or Wisconsin Public Radio have the number of dairy farms Wisconsin lost last year at just above the 800 mark, not quite the 900 Sarah quoted. Either way, that's a huge number. That's more than two farms closing a day. Mark Stevenson told me that in a typical year, Wisconsin loses somewhere between 3 to 4 percent of its farms. But last year in 2019, it was closer to 10 percent. And it's taking a toll on the community. I can't think of a single farmer that doesn't feel a very strong sense of identity with what they do. In some cases, it may be the physical piece of land that they're on. It may have been owned for two or three or four generations, you know, within the family. And so they feel very closely tied to that. In many cases, it may be the animals themselves. I mean, individual animals that they know and recognize and the animals recognize the people. It becomes a very personal kind of uh, business in many, many ways. There's no question that it's taken a big toll on morale. <clears throat> I get calls from farms, you know, on a fairly regular basis. They would call and just, you know, kind of begin talking and it didn't take very long to realize that they were just depressed, um, defeated about working hard, putting in, you know, these 12, 14 hour days and still losing money and owing people money. Uh, they don't like to do that. Uh, these are proud folks and you know they want to be fiscally responsible. We do have a couple of people in our Center for Dairy Profitability that work in the area of stress and they have been really busy. The intimate tie between identity and industry 
has had devastating ramifications amongst Wisconsin farmers. There aren't reliable stats on this sort of thing, but anecdotally, farmer suicides appear to be on the rise. Despite unstable global markets far out of any one person's control, there's a sense of personal failing here. I asked Joy Kirkpatrick, a farm stress and farm succession expert with the Center for Dairy Profitability, about this phenomenon. What she had to say is something I haven't been able to shake. Unfortunately, I think they put a lot of the blame on themselves, especially if it has been a generational farm, um, and they're the generation that it may be the last generation that farms it. Unfortunately, I think they see it as a personal failing, which they they shouldn't. Sometimes it's just the timing, right? I don't see a lot of it as an anger, anger outward a lot of times. It's a disappointment in themselves that they think they've failed in some sort of way. Sarah Lloyd reflected on what this period of instability has been like for her family. Farmers work so hard. So, you know, I taught my husband works usually 14 to 16 hour days, seven days a week, and we still have employees. And so, like, try to put yourself in the shoes where you would go to work and you would pay. (laughs) You would end up paying to do that work because (laughs) you're not making any money. And it's just stressful. Of course, it's stressful. Like, you don't like to have bills piling up and people calling you and be like, oh, are you going to pay me? So that's stressful. And and the thing that always strikes me, because I talk with a lot of farmers, I work with farmers for my day job, you know, there is a certain amount of this like, well, there's nothing we can do. It's just the way it is. I mean, I make it my life to fight back against that kind of inevitability, but it it is pretty pervasive because we are, you know, in these markets and especially as the dairy industry has become more dependent on the export markets the dairy industry went from like four percent of the u.s dairy production was going to exports like 15 years ago and now it's was up to 16 or 15 percent uh last year and so that is another part of the problem like we're overproducing we don't have anywhere for all this product to go so then we go oh well, we'll just export it And so the export markets just become kind of this dumping ground. And as a dairy farmer, as an individual business person, like that is not a secure place for me to be. I can't control the global markets. It it doesn't make sense. It's a pretty vicious cycle. A dip in milk prices leads to an increase in production, which creates a reliance on export markets, which forces farms to consolidate so they can increase production to get a larger piece of an ever-slimming pie farmers feel trapped. Dan Kaufman, the author of The Fall of Wisconsin, you heard from last episode, has also written on this topic. Back in August, he published an article in The New Yorker called How Struggling Farmers May Determine Trump's Fate. So I asked Dan about the trends we're seeing in America's Dairyland. I think you can talk to any small family farmer and the biggest problem is overproduction because there's no controls over the market. The big will get bigger because they can produce something more efficiently. And if the environmental regulations are torn down so you can have a 5,000 cow farm, then it's advantageous for you to do that. The only way it becomes not so is if the government says, you cannot do this. But now what's happening is a rapid consolidation. And it's because government policy, Trump's especially, but 
before him too, Obama, it, it, it favors corporate farming in many, many different ways. Tax breaks, the money that was handed out the, for the COVID relief and so on, it's all going to the largest farms. And you're encouraged to get bigger because that is the only way you can keep up. You know, it's a treadmill. And in 2016, with declining milk prices and a market that seemed completely out of control, Wisconsin dairy farmers were looking for something different. I'm going to tell our NAFTA partners that I intend to immediately renegotiate the terms of that agreement to get a better deal for our workers, okay? We're also going to stand up for our dairy farmers in Wisconsin. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country, and nothing will ever well, top NAFTA. Donald Trump's America First campaign railed against free trade and promised to renegotiate existing trade deals for the American people, a promise that launched the country into a series of trade wars. Game on here. A trade war between the United States and China is here. It's real. At the stroke of midnight, the U.S. hit China with tariffs on $34 billion worth of goods. China immediately responded with its revenge tariffs of equal value, accusing the U.S. of launching the largest trade war in economic history and calling America trade bullies. The repercussions of Trump's tariffs on foreign aluminum and steel rippled through the dairy community. Here's Mark. Some of the things that were done were a fairly blunt instrument. You know, so when the U.S. started to put tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, against countries that were making those products and shipping them in, those countries looked to retaliate with tariffs against us. And of course, they aren't going to put tariffs on steel and aluminum because we don't ship that to other countries. They look for the products that they receive from the United States. And in many cases, they're actually looking at the states where there was strong administration support, you know, during the election to try to find items that would send a strong message. And uh, dairy was one of those. So countries like Mexico, as a good example, is our largest trading partner for dairy products. They buy a lot of dairy products from us and they put a 20% or 20% tariff on cheese uh, coming into Mexico. And overnight, they started to look for alternative supplies of that product. So uh, that hurt our dairy industry as well. So some of those trade policies have been difficult. Now, <clears throat> maybe in the long run, it will be better that we've had negotiated trade policies, but it's yet to be seen. Uh, the process of getting from where we were to where we will be is sometimes rocky. To Mark's point, farmers in states that had supported the president were targeted and used as a political football. Rather than pass on a 20% price increase to consumers, most dairy farms absorbed the extra cost themselves. Another setback totally out of their control that intensified an already unstable market. But the president did renegotiate NAFTA and signed the USMCA agreement with Mexico and Canada at the end of 2018. The deal expands the U.S.'s ability to sell dairy products to Canadian markets, which was more strictly limited in NAFTA. And while that is a win for U.S. dairy farmers, it might not be a significant one. Everyone I talked to seemed truly meh about it. Agricultural economists don't seem to think this will greatly change the current situation for U.S. dairy farmers. So did the economic turmoil along the way justify the modest gains? Or has this additional uncertainty pushed farmers away from Trump? From what I've heard, it changed almost nothing. 
Sadly, I think we were relatively used to the instability. And, you know, I think it certainly didn't help that, you know, Trump pissed off our big trading partners of ours. Like, that's not a good deal. But, you know, when you think about it, Bill Clinton put NAFTA into place. You know, trade agreements historically that we have seen in the modern time have not been helping farm families. They haven't been helping workers. They haven't been protecting the environment. They have basically been a way for corporations to get better access to move their capital around. And trade deals have not been helping real people. And I actually think that, you know, when people contact me or want to talk to me and say, well, how could rural people in Wisconsin not understand that Trump is not doing them a favor or, you know, that why can't rural people understand that Democrats have their interests in mind? Well, when you look at the economy and the markets and all of the benefits that corporations have been able to amass, the Democrats did that too, you know? So I, I really am not as surprised that people say, I don't know, what what do these parties have to offer me? Because they're not really doing anything, either one of them. Candidly, Sarah's reaction initially surprised me, but her feelings were echoed by a lot of folks in Wisconsin. The trade wars didn't make a difference because, well, everything was already pretty tenuous. Disruption and pain weren't new to these resilient farmers. So at least Trump tried to do something about the problems NAFTA provoked. Here's Dan. Some people that I talk to, some of the ones that still support Trump like the perception, and maybe they see it as a reality, that he's really fighting hard for them and he's willing to, to really shake things up because it's, they're frustrated and it's a bit, un, you know, to be fair to them, it's a complicated for them and it involves the cooperation of both parties around this policy. So there's no clear place to place their blame When you look at the USMCA, it basically does nothing for dairy farmers. There's like about $70 million. It hasn't even been ratified. I do think if a Democrat came on the scene and railed against big ag, they would get a a surprisingly receptive audience. And since NAFTA, you've seen like the United States has lost like more than 200,000 farms. Those deals were written by, largely by, you know, corporations and their lobbyists, and, and their, their, their goals reflected that. And this consolidation of the family farm has had lasting political effects. Wisconsin was just, perhaps, the last holdout of this pervasive national trend. Rural America has been trending Republican for a long time, and I think largely that's this unseen reality of what the effect of corporate agriculture is. Wisconsin was one of the last places for that transformation to happen, partly because Wisconsin had a deeper than normal level of public investment. Its immigrant community that founded it built some enduring institutions like co-ops that reflected a more of a communitarian ethos, but it eroded over time. And that's an anomaly in the Midwest and it preserved rural cohesion to a degree um, longer than in elsewhere. While the progression to the right may have been delayed in rural Wisconsin, Trump won big in dairy country. Following the 2016 election, Ballotpedia calculated all the counties that voted for Obama twice before flipping for Trump in 2016. 23 of Wisconsin's 72 counties are these so-called pivot counties, 
and nearly all of these counties are in dairy-dense areas of western and southwestern Wisconsin. And until recently, Trump may have been on track to win them over again. By the end of 2019, dairy markets were looking up. The dairy community was optimistic that prices were rebounding after their five-year slump. There was hope, but then COVID-19 shook up politics and the dairy market once again. Good evening, and it's great to have you with us here tonight. And it was another day of fast-moving developments in this coronavirus emergency, and we will carefully get through it all right here with you tonight. We're going to begin with the states of emergency across this country. And now I came across a State of Dairy Markets report Mark Stevenson wrote on April 1st of this year. It details the economic shutdown from the virus and its effects on the industry. It's a somber letter. At the end, Mark added this personal note. Finally... I would suggest that we all take time to be thankful. Most of us are warm at night, well-fed and healthy, and we have our family and a greater circle of people who care about us. It's going to be a rough year, and we'll get through to the other side. If you are feeling too despondent, call someone. All of us need emotional support and a virtual hug sometimes. Um, in March and April, demand collapsed. And, you know, the first that we saw was in exports. <clears throat> we had ships that were caught in ports um, in other countries, you know, not able to unload product just because the ports were closed down. And we suddenly had states, including our own, that began to issue safer at home orders. Half of our dairy product sales go through out of home eating. So restaurants, institutional food, that type of thing. Overnight, those sales were lost. I mean, just immediately gone. And almost overnight, as everybody ran to the retail store to fill their pantries and refrigerators, we had tremendous demand for beverage milk or cheese. And we had empty shelves in stores um, for quite a period of time. The industry had to do a lot of shifting behind the scenes um, to move milk from one kind of plant to another and to begin to accommodate those um, new demands. The estimate was we had just too much milk. We couldn't find enough new demand to take care of all this changing from out-of-home eating to in-home eating, and uh, that we simply were going to have to reduce milk production. Sarah's experience during the initial shutdown was also startling, but not as dire as some of her neighbors. When all the restaurants on the East Coast shut down, then all the cheese that had been going into that channel uh, just didn't have a place to go. That's when you saw that people were dumping milk. Um, farmers were being asked, or not asked, <laughs> were forced to dump milk. Uh, we did not experience that, luckily, but there were people around us. Um, and that's just pure oversupply. And as we've seen across industries, COVID has amplified the inequalities and instabilities that have long existed in our economy. Dairy is no exception. In the immediate, it looks like the industry has rebounded from its initial dip in March and April. But Mark is concerned about the long-term consequences. What we're going to be left with as a legacy from this COVID is massive, drastic recession, and not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And that's going to take a long time to dig out from. And that's going to have an impact on all kinds of channels, including food and dairy. So the dairy industry isn't in the clear yet. And while this community overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump in 2016, the combination of a looming recession and its democratic history means these votes aren't a given for either party. 
So how is the Biden campaign trying to win them back? Sarah thinks that focusing on what we've learned from COVID could be successful. You know, I watch agricultural policy. I know things that I think would help farmers and and the food system. And COVID showed us how fragile and brittle the food system is. And I think that Democrats could come out really strong about supporting a rebuilding, a restructuring of the way we produce the food and get it into the markets. But Sarah hasn't seen much of that from the Biden campaign. He apparently does have a rural plan, and and so this will be a reminder for me to go read it. But I, I mean, I think it's telling you something like I'm very active in agriculture and farm circles, and I haven't seen seen it from Biden. Like we cannot have the same old, same old because it's not working for people. Yes, Biden has a rural plan. Yes, Sarah should go read it. But in her defense, Sarah is wildly politically tuned in. She's a textbook high-information voter who cares deeply about these issues. So if Biden's plan isn't reaching her, that's an issue for his campaign. I read Biden's plan. He places a hefty emphasis on increasing access to federal loans, broadband internet, and health care for rural communities. He also outlines how rural America can be leaders in creating a more green economy. But when it comes to the sticking points Sarah outlined, like exports and consolidation, there's a bit less there. Biden's plan suggests that trade deals have to be fair, since exports are such a large part of a rural economy. But there doesn't seem to be any discussion of fundamentally changing that fact. And as for consolidation, Biden says his administration will enforce existing antitrust laws, which have long gone unchecked, but doesn't go further than that. Sarah is worried it isn't enough. But I do still think that Democrats can win. They got to offer people something. And, you know, really, the economy is been in the toilet for a long time for a lot of people and not just farmers. And we really fundamentally need to rework the way that this, the systems are working so that people can can get by and even thrive. And, and that's not happening for everyone right now, and it wasn't happening even before Trump. But again, what I've seen from who they're putting on the trail around agriculture and farming, it's all establishment, it's all commodities, it's all corporate ag, and it is not going to excite anyone. And it's not gonna bring anybody over from the other side. Send help. (laughs) Help. Sarah's dairy farm is in one of these coveted pivot counties. As Nate Silver reminded us in the first episode, many of these counties that previously voted for Obama twice before going for Trump could still have a reversion to the mean and slide back to blue. In 2012, Obama won Sarah's county, Columbia County, with a 13.5% margin of victory. Trump then took the county by two points in 2016. That's a 15-point swing for the Republicans, and that could be challenging to replicate. Any reversion to the mean would be positive for the Democrats. Sarah, much to my surprise, was optimistic. So I am relatively confident that Columbia County will go blue again. I think that the vast majority of people that voted for Trump will excitedly, enthusiastically vote for him again. I think a certain portion of his vote 
will be like, he's pushed it a little too far. I can't deal with the tweeting. I'm just going to sit this one out. And then at the same time, I think other people who maybe sat it out in 2016, who were some of those more often blue voters, are like, all right, stakes are high. I got to show up this time. I'm voting blue. One group of voters that Democrats are trying to pick off that Sarah just mentioned are Trump supporters who might be feeling a bit less enthusiastic this time around. We're a conventional dairy. We milk uh, just under 60, mostly Jersey cows. We are pasture-based and grazing. Um, So, you know, just typically typical small family farm, I guess. That's Jim Briggs, a dairy farmer in Marathon County. I loved that both Jim and Sarah described their farms as typical dairies, despite a 300-plus cow difference in size and scope. It just goes to show that the definition of a family farm in Wisconsin can really run the gamut. There's also a generational divide. While Sarah's in-laws have been on the property for generations, Jim moved to Wisconsin just five years ago to return to his dairy farming roots. And as we've discussed, the last five years have been pretty challenging for the dairy industry. You know, so far we've been able to push through and, you know... Like you said, it has not been easy. You know, there's no stability in the market right now, so you don't know, you know, what, you know, you could be getting paid $24 a hundredweight today and $12 a hundredweight in two months from now. You know, that's essentially a 50% cut in pay, but those are the kind of swings we've been seeing in the last five years. In the wake of this instability, Jim has felt invisible to leaders in Washington. I don't think that anyone in Washington knows we really exist or even, you know, I don't think we're even on the radar. I think if you grew up in New York City or Washington, D.C. or somewhere like that, that, you know, you were insulated from rural America, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what image they conjure up when they think of a farmer, but, you know, I I don't think it's a small, you know, 50-cow dairy that they're thinking about. I asked Jim if things felt different in 2016. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'd like to say that I felt that way at the time, but I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure now. Mm-hmm. Did you support President not. Trump in 2016? Yes, at the time I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about his message resonated for you then? You know, I just at the time I felt like you know he was more of a businessman and maybe would you know be more business minded and you know do things that would help out the working-class people, and in some respects, he probably has. Well, do you think that he has, or does it feel as if that those commitments weren't necessarily made or kept? Does any politician ever keep any of their commitments? (laughs) It's hard to get heard when you're, you know, you're a small guy, and it just just seems like it's always empty promises from both sides. Did the trade wars of the last couple of years and the renegotiation of NAFTA, did that swayed your opinion of him at all? Not really. I mean, um, speaking of dairies, I think, you know, relying on export markets is just false hope and has never been sustainable for dairy. Um, You know, I think we would be better off focusing on our own country's production and, you know, trying to meet that demand and not oversupply and try to dump our excess on, on foreign markets that are not always, you know, profitable plan to support him again? I, I, I don't even know at this point in time. I, you know, everything is, you know, everything is just so divided right now. And it's almost like right now we're picking the lesser of two evils again. You know, it's just politics just feel like a complete disaster the last few, you know, few years. It's just 
I mean, it's almost sickening, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I I did see that your county that your your farm is in went pretty heavily for Trump in 2016. Um, yes. So does it does it feel divided within your county, or does it feel pretty united you know, behind the president? You know, driving around, you know, it's probably you know, 80 to 90 percent Trump signs and, you know, a Biden sign, you know, scattered here and there. I, you know, from my observations driving around and what I've heard, you know, talking to people and through social media and such. It sounds like to me that your, at least your enthusiasm, though, may have waned for politics yeah. at all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Are you still planning to vote in November? Yeah, I, I plan on both. I just, you know, I just don't know who for yet. You know. Mm-hmm. I guess. How do you think you're going to make up your mind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think the next few weeks we'll probably hear a lot more from both sides, and you know, I'm hoping that I will hear something that you know makes me a believer in one or the other. Jim doesn't appear to see a lifeline in sight, at least not one coming from Washington. Both parties have let him down and seem unwilling to challenge big agriculture's siege on family farms. And each day, that leaves dairy farmers further squeezed by global markets. And people like Jim and Sarah, they weather all this uncertainty and instability because it's part of who they are and what they love to do. It doesn't seem like too much to ask that the cards not be stacked against them. In the immediate, Jim's uncertainty is bad news for the Trump campaign. As a reminder, Donald Trump racked up his biggest margins in rural communities, and to hold the state, he'll need to do that again. But the fact that Jim doesn't see much daylight between the two candidates is bad news for the Biden campaign. Biden needs to compel persuadable voters like Jim. But that's not all. Biden also needs to simultaneously inspire a very different group of voters in the state's Democratic strongholds. That's where we're headed next. Next week, on Winning Wisconsin, we're going to Milwaukee, where turning out the vote could decide the direction this tipping point state falls in November. You know, I am so proud to be from Wisconsin, right on the escape route on the Underground Railroad. Are we, are we red? Are we blue? Are we actually purple? And the fact that we were solely to blame for the outcome of the election was infuriating and just quite frankly, just not fair. Winning Wisconsin is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch, and produced by myself and Maddie Foley. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. To keep tabs on all we're doing at Wonder Media Network, you can find us on Twitter at WMN Media. You can find me on Twitter at GraceLynch08. Talk to you next week. If it would be the biggest imposition, I am wondering if you wouldn't mind walking around part of your property and recording the sound. It's it's an audio medium. I'm trying to put people there. And... My rooster has been roostering this whole time. You've missed it. So I'll get him. I'll get him. And I can definitely get some cows mooing. I can make that happen. Before you go, I want to tell you about another show I think you might like, Encyclopedia Womanica. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. 
This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode's only five minutes long. I get to work on Encyclopedia Womanica here at WMN, and I can say that producing these episodes is one of my favorite parts of my job. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts.